Welcome back, Journeyers. This episode will return to Heather, Stacy, and Ken as they try to catch up with the boys. When we last left the trio, they barely escaped with their lives the city Portress Petra as it was attacked by monsters. Now, back to the story. Chapter 36 Heather turned her face to the wind as the ship gently lifted and settled among the glistening waves. Gulls cried, and somewhere in the water, a bell from a buoy rang, giving clues for the ship's reckoning. They had immediately pulled away from the coastline the first night in a panicked attempt to escape the burning city. The ocean had darkened as the shoreline diminished. Now the water being sliced by the hull of the ship was the deepest blue. Heather decided it was her new favorite color. It was a cold and mysterious color, but full of promise of freedom and cleansing. Yes, it was definitely her favorite color now. To her surprise, she loved sea travel. For one thing, there were no bugs. She didn't know if it was the sea salt that killed the creepy crawly things or if the ship they were on was exceptionally clean or the distance from the shore, but she believed she hadn't seen a mosquito since they reached the coast. From her vantage point on the bow, she could make out the faintest strip of land. In her world of motorized vehicles, horseback riding was recreational, and it would remain one of her favorite pastimes. But after spending over a week in the saddle, she admitted that traveling by hoof had lost a lot of its glamour. Although it was new to her, she could imagine the joy of sailing planting firm roots in her heart. The gentle murmurs and creaking of the deck and the sounds of waves dashing themselves against the hull were all familiar to her through movies and television. But they were things she had never experienced firsthand. The side effects of being part of a generation raised by television, she supposed. That was at least one good thing to come from all this craziness. She was no longer on the sidelines and wished never to return to them, even amidst all the uncertainty. But honestly, who knew what the future held for them? There were moments when this world unveiled its magnificence and wonder. Among the turmoil, she was beginning to understand herself and realize that one event didn't have to define her. She got to decide who she chose to be, and no one else. Yes, there was terror, and she already feared for her life several times since coming to the strange place, but there was also times like this, here, traveling on the desert sea, she felt at home. And for the first time in an eternity, she felt clean and hopeful. Heather watched Callista with Stacy at her elbow, carrying a bucket. The first day at sea, Heather constantly had to reaffirm to herself that she did not enjoy watching the dryad grow greener by the hour. This taste didn't come close to express how Callista felt about the ocean. Heather didn't know a word strong enough to describe the dryad's revulsion to sailing. She knew it wasn't polite to find humor in other people's afflictions. But Heather had to admit, there was a certain amount of satisfaction in watching the graceful creature stumble around the deck. Heather's lips compressed in sympathy as she watched Calista struggle. Now, Heather felt bad for the poor girl, and more than a little guilty for taking any type of joy in her suffering. Callista had saved their lives on more than one occasion, and she deserved better than Heather's petty jealousy. She nodded to herself. She decided to kick the green-eyed monster out of her head and treat Callista more like a friend, which, Heather realized, the Metaf was becoming. Man, I really thought she'd get used to it by now. Ken took a space on the railing next to her. I haven't seen anybody that sick since Michael got drunk on Bacardi and Jim Beam when Vicky dumped him. 
I think it's more along the lines of thalassophobia. Her fear is driving up her anxiety levels, which makes her nauseous, which makes her throw up. Ken looked at her sideways. That's what I like about you, Heather. You know how to bring things down to a personal level. Do you want something, Ken? Ken hawked a loogie into the rushing water below. Nope, just bored. Stacy's playing nurse, and the sailors don't talk much. I think they are suspicious of Callista. That leaves only you to talk to. So? So, Buttons. Heather said under her breath. It was a phrase her mother always used. Heather never understood it, and therefore never cared for it. Nevertheless, she found herself repeating it. What? Nothing. She looked out across the waves, and a thought occurred to her. Ken, do you think we're a product of our parents? Uh, what? Heather tried not to roll her eyes, and she almost succeeded. It was a simple enough question to understand. Are we merely a product of our parents? My mom used to say that phrase, sew buttons, and even now, I don't really get it, but I still find myself repeating it. She watched his shoulders tense as he formulated his thoughts. Heather heard a distinct pop, pop, pop as Ken turned his head to crack his neck. My father, he cleared his throat. <clears throat> My father would twirl his keys on his finger like a gunslinger. I don't think he even realized he was doing it half the time. Then it would drive my mom crazy. She'd yell from the kitchen for him to cut it out. And he'd stop, of course. But eventually those keys would find their way back onto his finger. Ken smiled at the memories that Heather could not see, his dark eyes distant and quiet. The ocean seemed to draw his attention for a moment. He blew out a breath and pulled out a set of keys from his pocket. He died in a car wreck. I have been carrying his keys ever since. My point is, maybe we mimic our parents because they're part of us, and it makes us feel like we're part of them. Maybe we want to feel like we're part of something, even if it has a bad memory attached to it. He twirled his keys once, and then returned them to his pocket. Maybe, Heather said. Ken slipped away as Heather stared at the horizon. He was an onion. Every time she thought she had that boy figured out, he revealed another unexpected layer. Heather prided herself on her ability to read people, but Ken continued to baffle her. He was boisterous, but surprisingly shy. He spoke without... Th and yet, even after knowing him for months... And traveling closely with him, she hadn't a clue about his father's death. Maybe the reason she couldn't figure him out was because he hadn't decided on the type of person he intended to be. If one thing her mom's impromptu psychology lessons taught her is that people are constantly in flux, and none so more than teenagers. That being said, Ken still remained a mystery to her. There was much more in him that meets the eye, and she felt humbled by him allowing her to see a brief insight of himself. Still waters run deep, she said to the dark blue waters. Another phrase from her mother that she didn't quite understand. Heather hoped her parents were doing okay and wondered if they missed her as much as she missed them. It was cliche, she knew, but she did wish she had told her mom and dad more often that she loved them. She corrected her thought. Well, maybe it wasn't cliche now, considering it was a real possibility she would never see them again. Later, she left the bow to eat and to grab that thick robe that she had received from the centurion leader, Rufus, which seemed like a lifetime ago, to protect her against a growing cold, but returning quickly to watch the red orb melt into the ocean. 
She liked the solitude of the bow and felt safer from the sailor's wandering eyes. Apparently, some things didn't change about males, no matter what their species was. It had taken them two days to outdistance the smoke of Morro Bay, or Portus Petra as it was known in this world. The smoke had diminished to a smudge across the aft, sitting above the sea like an omen. She deliberately turned her back on the sight and watched the sunset. She didn't believe they were responsible for the destruction of the city. She knew she was a cause of it. It was a reluctance admittance, but Kevin's muttering apologies that night of their escape had sparked the thought she refused to extinguish. Nothing good comes from running from the truth. She said to herself, it was her own saying, and it had served her well. If they had not come to the city, those things never would have attacked it. They had come for her. So, maybe Ken's guilt was misplaced. Barely. Still, she didn't trust Ken enough to reveal the full extent of her dreams about the woman with the eyes, let alone confessing of their continuation. There was no denying that she was being chased. But by what or why continued to elude her? The Canth and the Exotheneo wanted her, but they were only foot soldiers. There was something darker pulling the strings, something infinitely more terrifying. When she saw Steve again, she would tell him everything. He would know what to do. The light fled with the setting sun, leaving Heather with dark thoughts above dark waters. Steve always knows what to do. Alone in the dark, even Heather couldn't tell if it was said as a statement or a prayer. Chapter 37 Steve had no idea what to do. He was flummoxed. Flummoxed and frustrated. Both states of mind that he emphatically avoided. The cat was out of the bag, and the animal was rabid. I'm sorry, guys, Mike said for the upteenth time. Steve ground his teeth. So help me, if you apologize one more time. Mike's eyes narrowed, and he opened his mouth to retort, but his hand glided over his sword hilt, and he nodded instead. You're right. No use moping about a spoiled quench. Just heat it up and get back to work. Right. Steve said dubiously. He didn't have a clue what Mike just said, but his friend stopped apologizing, and that was good enough for him. Can he help us find Trindock? He seemed to know everything about him, Bears said. He padded quietly beside them while Mike and Steve rode. There was no doubt about it, Steve thought. Bear was taller, bigger, and hairier. Steve might have to drop the bear nomenclature and start calling him Bigfoot. He said he would talk to the elders of the church. Mike said, but he didn't sound convinced that the monk could or would do anything to aid them. If they find out about us, will they react like him? Bear asked. Who knows? But based on my luck, they'll probably burn us at the stake. Michael answered. But Xylon said Leander would keep it a secret, but only after he reminded him that he owes us his life. I don't like it, Steve said. Leander's realization that he traveled with men had turned the crazy monk from a minor annoyance into a real threat. His religious fever could get in the way of his common sense. Steve couldn't recall one example when religious fever didn't get in the way of common sense, not even to save one's own skin. In fact, it seemed to him that risking your life was a prerequisite for the devout and sought after by the zealots. In Steve's book, Leander was definitely a zealot. He pulled at his beard and glanced at the two hyperboreans, who now rode apart from the rest of the group. 
Leander sat ramrod straight in his saddle and shot furtive glances at them. Zylon merely nodded when he caught Steve's eye. I know, but if anyone can help him keep him in line, it's Zylon, Michael said. Steve shook his head. There was nothing that could be done about Leander. The coin had been tossed, and they'd have to wait to see which side would turn up. He'd just hope it wasn't one of those heads-they-win-and-tails-we-lose type of tosses. Well, what's done is done, Steve said to himself without much conviction. With pretty much nothing else to look at, Steve turned his attention to the wall. It stood 60 feet high, with towers that protruded from its face at every hundred feet like gears of a cog. To Steve, it looked rather flimsy and smelled like rotting chalk. It wasn't constructed of stone, but of brick, cement, and mortar, and he could clearly see the three levels of discoloration. The first and darkest level was probably 12 feet high and assumed it was primarily for defense. The two remaining levels didn't look strong to him and appeared to be more for show than anything else. However, it didn't matter how high the walls were. It was the gate that was the weakest point. A few solid hits to that capstone and the entrance would crumble. There were several other weaknesses he could point out, another strange ability he had acquired recently. Each year, the Polytechnic University in San Luis Obispo held an event called Poly Royal, where the general public was invited to check out the college grounds. It was a fair of sorts, where fraternities and sororities would have fundraising booths and also explain what they were about, and the college departments would also open up their doors. One of his favorite places to go during the open house was the science department. He supposed that kind of pushed him into the nerdy category, but Steve didn't mind. You had to be smart to be funny. And Steve was pretty hilarious if he didn't say so himself. The labs were filled with all sorts of hand-on experiments. One had a container full of water and cornstarch. If you slapped a mixture, it was solid as a rock, and you could even crack it. But if you eased your hand into it, the substance acted like a liquid, and you could easily touch the bottom of the container. Magic. There were other experiments on display that showed how to measure gas by volume, an exploding one that loudly demonstrated why helium is used to fill balloons instead of hydrogen, and one that turned a person into a human gyroscope. Someone would hold a bicycle wheel by its handles attached to its axle as they sat on a bar stool. With the tires spinning, a person could rotate left or right depending on how they tilted the wheel. More magic. But the one that had struck most in his mind was the plastic wall. The plastic would change colors where he pressed it, the student scientist had said that they were seeing stress. She had called it photoelasticity and said that the material refracted light differently where pressure was applied. And now, a gazillion miles away, he saw the same effect in the wall before him. It wasn't a rainbow effect like the plastic, but there was a definite hue in certain places, like the capstone and the gate, that showed where the most stress resided and in turn where the weakness of the wall lie. He turned his eyes away. Looking at all that crushed rock forced into an unnatural shape made him both queasy and angry. He squirmed in his saddle. Soon he was going to be surrounded by it. Are you all right? Bear asked him. Steve turned his attention to the line of ships moving up a canal about a half a mile to his left. I'm fine. I just felt a little queasy there for a second. Man, I can't wait to get out of this saddle. He reached in his pocket and rubbed the chunk of gold he had found back at the stream. It felt pure and soft. It called to be molded into something beautiful. Ask and you shall receive, Michael said, 
and nodded to the gate. A sortie of Hyperboreans emerged from the gigantic city gates and galloped at them in tight formation. Zoe raised her hand and drew the group to a halt. Steve turned and looked behind him and saw Xylon talking to Leander. Judging by the sour look on the monk's face, he was receiving a final lesson on discretion. With an impressive display of coordination, the approaching party broke apart and surrounded them with five fully armored Hyperboreans on each side. At least, Steve was impressed. The Dryads sat on their horses with a casual disdain. Kanea spit on the ground, and one of the girls gave an exaggerated yawn. Even Zine, who was always ready with a smile, looked nonplussed. The Calvary wore a type of scale armor similar to the Dryads used, but it looked clanky compared to it. They all wore helmets that had cheek protectors hanging from each side and had a short sword strapped to their chests. Each held a short spear with the butt fit into a small pocket on the saddle. Steve couldn't figure out why the saddle looked different to him until he realized it had no stirrups. The leader, Steve assumed, because he had the biggest helmet with a ridiculous red plume coming out the top of it, rode straight at Zoe, pulling up short at the last moment, throwing dust into the air. Steve could feel Michael tense next to him. Everybody be cool. Let's see how this plays out, Steve whispered. They weren't close enough to hear the two speak, but Steve had a pretty good guess how the exchange went. Big Helmet. Who are you and why are you here? Zoe. I'm Miss Big Britches. Take me to your leader. Big Helmet, taken aback. Miss Big Britches? Zoe. Yes. Now, are you going to sit there with that stupid look on your face or are you going to do your job, Aaron boy? Big Helmet gave her a sour look, and Steve could practically see the cogs turning in his head. No, Steve thought. You don't want to start a war because Miss Big Bridges is being rude to you. Big Helmet wheeled his horse around. Follow me. When the Hyperborean leader turned and proceeded towards the gate, Steve let out a breath that he hadn't realized he was holding and heard his two friends do the same. I bet she called him Reed Keeper. Michael muttered. No, Steve chuckled. That's her pet name for you. I bet if Zine called you Reed Keeper, that little redhead would turn her over her knee and spank her. I'd like to see that, Bear said. Bear, I am shocked and appalled, Steve feigned. Their laughter was quickly cut short when Zoe and Big Helmet whipped their heads around and looked at them. The two leaders looked uncomfortable, realizing they were on the same side, and turned forward with stiff backs. The boys smirked to each other, but kept their silence. Steve looked at the groin wall and swallowed. His mirth evaporated. The shadows of the gate passed over them, and it felt like Steve that they were entering into the maw of some enormous creature. That's all for this episode, Journeyers, and for the year. I'm going to be taking a holiday hiatus until January 12th, 2021. Meanwhile... Happy holidays, happy new year, and be good to one another.